Second Peter chapter two. Good to have you here this morning on a bright, sunny spring morning. Hope you enjoyed the day. Good to see you guys. Hey, let's start out with a word of prayer, and then we will get going on here with the rest of the message. Heavenly Father, it is good to be here this morning, thankful for the people you brought out in the time just to hear your word being taught, that your spirit lead and guide, and let us to truly listen, and then to take this, Lord, and apply it to our lives and all we do and say. Thank you in your name. Amen. All right, we started our study in 2 Peter a couple weeks ago, and if you weren't with us, uh, chapter 1, it's only a three-chapter book, but chapter 1 deals with practically living the life. We talk about this a lot. We'll have a lot of Bible studies. We'll mark verses. We'll underline things. We'll memorize scripture. But the point is we're supposed to go out and actually live it. And what we do and what we say. If we truly believe Genesis through Revelation is the holy inspired word of God, it should change how we live and how we act. If we truly believe in the eternity of heaven and hell, it should change how we live and act. To go out there and truly live it. Represent Jesus in every conversation we have, every interaction we have. And to be purposeful, spirit-led to say, Lord, I want to impact eternity in what we do. And then what chapter 1 ended up with was talking about the importance of God's word In that aspect of our life, look at verse 20. Knowing this verse from chapter 1, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The importance of God's Word. And we talked about how important it is to be in God's Word, and this is why we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible. That's what we feel, believe, is just a vital way to really understand it. And not just, once again, to mark it, to underline it, to memorize it, but to live it. God's Word doesn't return void, and the power of that. Now, here's the problem. If God's Word is that powerful, there's going to be a lot of attacks against it. And that's what we get into here in chapter 2. Now, this should not surprise us. Jesus repeatedly through the Gospels warned us, warned us that what's going to happen is that his word would be attacked. Paul even told us in the book of Acts, when he was leaving Ephesus, he says, as soon as I leave, he goes, ravenous wolves will come into the church and try to distort the word of God. 2,000 years later, it's still happening. People try to take God's word. They try to twist it. They take God's word. They make a lie out of it. And what happens is the truth becomes diluted. And what we need to remember as we go through this study, there's three truths. First one is Jesus' truth. John 14, 6, Jesus' truth. The next one, the Holy Spirit is truth. John 16, 13. And lastly, the Word of God is truth. John 17, 17. What that means is this. If those are the three truths, everything that happens needs to line up with those things. So therefore, if there's an action I'm going to do and it does not line up with the nature of Jesus, if it is not led by the Spirit and does not line up with the Word of God, I don't want to do it. Because those three things are truth. If someone comes in with a teaching or a doctrine that doesn't make sense to me, I go line it up with the truth of Jesus. I go line it up with the truth of the Holy Spirit. I go line it up with the truth of God's Word. If it does not line up, it is wrong. That's the beauty of knowing truth. Is since we know truth, we know the foundation of this life. And since I know the truth of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and God's Word, I now have a clear direction of how I'm supposed to live. I don't have to spend my time and energy searching and seeking because I know truth. And in this world that we live in, they keep trying to tell you, is there even truth? That's not a new concept. Remember, 2,000 years ago, before Jesus went to the cross, Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? Well, we know truth is Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and God's Word. So with that introduction, let's get into this. Verse 1, chapter 2. 
But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false prophets, excuse me, false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who brought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle. And their destruction does not slumber. Two things we're going to talk about. False prophets, false teachers, if you see that in verse 1. What's the difference? This is how I describe it. False prophets like to say, the Lord says. False teachers like to say, the Bible says. So therefore, if someone comes up and says, the Lord says, it has to line up with, once again, our three truths. Jesus, God's word, and the Holy Spirit. If it does not line up with that truth, then they are a false prophet. Now, the Old Testament had a surefire way of dealing with false prophets. Is if you came up and you made a prophecy, and that prophecy did not come true, you were therefore then stoned to death. It was a one-and-done deal, okay? So therefore, you had one shot. Now, today, we live in grace. Thankfully, that doesn't happen. But the same mindset is there. We can't put up with this false prophecy. So therefore, if someone comes up and says, the Lord says, and it does not line up with the Lord, if it does not line up and become true, that's a false prophet. This stuff still happens today. What was it? Was it six years ago the guy was putting up all the billboards saying that Jesus was going to return in May? Right then and there, we knew that was a false prophecy. The Bible says no man knows the day or hour. So someone puts a billboard up on Route 6 telling me the day, pretty sure he's going to be wrong. Now, what about false teaching? This is where people like to take God's word and then twist it. They like to change it a little bit. Remember years ago where they were trying to push on us about the idea of Jesus being married? There was this big push, Jesus being married. Jesus is married. He's married to you and I. We're the bride of Christ. So therefore, he's already taken. That's me. So you have to remember that. So when they come and try to give you this false teaching, no, it does not line up with Jesus, the Spirit, and God's word. Just keep it simple. So anytime someone comes up to you, and I don't care if it's here or whatever, anytime you hear a teaching or someone says the Lord, remember it has to line up with Jesus, the Spirit, and God's Word. If it does not line up, it is false. It is false. What will they do? Well, according to verse 1, they're going to come in secretly. Come in secretly. This is something that uh, Satan has done for thousands of years. Go back to Genesis And what you saw in Genesis chapter 3 is when Satan there came and spoke to Eve in the garden. What did he say? He said this, has God indeed said? Satan likes just to twist things secretly just a little bit. When Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, Satan quoted scripture to Christ, but he took it out of context. So what happens with false teaching and false prophets, they will take the truth of God's word and they will just twist it just a little bit. And sometimes, guys, it's really hard to see. It may be 90% true, but if it's 90% true, it's 10% false. We have to be careful that we see the full 100%. Once again, Satan's plan has God indeed said, just twisting it a little bit. What do they do? They bring in this idea of destructive heresies. And you're going to see this word repeated. Look at verse 1. We have destructive heresies that lead to destruction. And then in verse 3, we see destruction again. I think you're catching a theme here. What is a destructive heresy? It can be so many different things. Maybe it's a works-based idea. That sure, yeah, believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, but make sure you do these things just to kind of confirm it as well. That's a destructive heresy. For by grace we have been saved through faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. So it's a heresy that comes in and it starts to destruct us. Now the next thing that we see here, what do they do? They even deny who Jesus is. Verse 1, even denying the Lord. 
I tell you, if you really want to know where somebody stands, ask them who Jesus is. I've shared this story with you before. When I first got saved, I was the world's greatest evangelist. Because I would go up to everybody and just say, do you believe in God? And everybody would say yes. And I'd walk away saying, amen, they're going to heaven. Because that's what I thought you had to know. Then I started realizing, wait a second, even Satan believes in God. So then I started saying, okay, are you a Christian? Well, in the world we live in today, most everybody says they're a Christian. So I still thought I was the world's greatest evangelist. Then I realized people just say that. And over the years now, I started realizing the question I like to ask people, who is Jesus to you? Tell me who you think Jesus is. Because that is going to reveal a lot. Guys, there's a lot of false religions, false cults out there that claim Jesus. And they don't have a problem with it. Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, Muslims, they don't have a problem with Jesus. You know, we just did some mosque outreaches a couple weeks ago. And if you go up and talk to the Muslims about Jesus, they love Jesus. They think Jesus is great. Well, who is he to you? Did he die on the cross for your sins? Is he the son of God? Well, no, Jesus is a great prophet. Okay, well, if I talk to maybe the Mormons, who's Jesus? Well, they love Jesus. But Jesus and Lucifer are spiritual brothers that were spiritual brothers too as well. If you talk to Jehovah Witness, he's the first created being of God. Who is Jesus? And these are the things that we need to understand. What does the Bible say about Jesus? Please remember, when you stand for truth, you're really going to divide. If you want everybody to like you, do not be a Christian, okay? Be an ice cream man. Everybody loves the ice cream man. Bells start ringing. Kids run to you. They hug you. They give you money. Be the ice cream man. If you want everybody to like you, though, don't be a Christian. Do you realize by saying you're a Christian, just just break the word down. I am a Christian. First word, Christ. I'm a follower of Christ. What did Jesus say? I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So by immediately saying I'm a Christian... I'm already offending about 4 billion people. If you want everybody to like you, it's not Christianity. Because Christianity is very black and white. There is truth, and then everything else isn't. We like to live in this world today where truth is very, once again, subjective. The beauty of Christianity is no. We know the truth, we see the truth, we live the truth, and then we preach that truth. Now, what does that look like for you practically? Jump back one book to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter 3. Look at verse 15. 1 Peter 3 verse 15. It says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We're called to defend the gospel. We're called to have conversations with people. Talk to the Mormons. Talk to the Muslims. Talk to the non-believers. Start the conversation with them. See where the Lord takes it. Don't be afraid to take a stand for your faith. We know truth. Let me, get, let me repeat this point. If we really do believe Genesis to Revelation, we really do believe the eternity of heaven and hell, that means every single conversation I have with somebody, that person is either spending eternity in heaven or spending eternity in hell. That should spur me on to look past me, look past the here and now, look past the selfishness of me and say there's something much bigger than me going on right now. And this person I'm talking to, as soul, is going to live on. Where do I want that person to be? Do I love them enough to speak truth to them or does it not impact me enough to even care? But so often we spend so much of our time and energy focusing on us. Focusing on just who we are. Look at verse 3. 
by covetousness, they will exploit you. There's a selfishness to us. What type of covetousness do they covet? I don't know. Maybe they covet money. I've seen a lot of pastors, preachers covet money. Maybe they covet the pride of a large following. Maybe they covet the power of being in ministry. I don't know. But we're just really selfish people that think about us. Dawn heard a great teaching one time that's really impacted her, and she was telling me about it. She's been trying to share this with different people that she's been talking about, how if you really look at eternity, how long eternity is, and how the world we're living right now, maybe the 70 years we get, the Bible says, is such a small, tiny portion of eternity. Why do we let the here and now dictate so much of our joy, peace, and happiness? We're supposed to look past this and look towards eternity. And so, therefore, when something happens now, we're supposed to learn to let that go and just say, Lord, I'm focused on eternity and the gospel because that's what matters. The here and now will not dictate my joy and my peace. So, So Dawn was telling me about this, and she said she's been trying to share this, you know, with maybe people going through difficult times, and she said especially with people going through difficult marriages. She said basically your your spouse is going to do things that's going to frustrate you. It's going to annoy you. It's going to upset you. But can you look past that now for the glory of God and for eternity? I thought, that's a, that's a great teaching. I said, you need to you know, really share that with more people. She goes, I try to. She goes, but there's a lot of times I don't. And I said, why don't you do that? I said, that's a great point. She goes, because every time I share that, I come home. And she goes, and you do something so stupid that makes me, I'm, she, she goes, that makes me second guess that, whether it's really worth it. It was in our kitchen. That's what she said. So she's got a great teaching, but I screw it up so much that she can't share it because. But isn't that the truth? Lord, I I get so worked over over what they said, what they did, or what's going on at work, or this situation, or this health issue. And it really just pales in comparison to eternity. Lord, we don't want to live for the here and now. We want to look past this. Everything you do impacts eternity. Everything you do, please keep that in the background. You're going to approach a week this week where people are really going to talk a lot about God. Some places even call it Holy Week. The world will actually stop for a little bit and at least give a casual observance to the idea that this man named Jesus maybe possibly 2,000 years ago died and maybe possibly rose. They'll at least mention it. What an opportunity to really bring up who Jesus really is. Now, the truth is, do they want to hear it? I don't know. But I know I want to present it. And do we have that mindset to be purposeful in how we live and how we act? What stand for the truth. So there is a selfishness to them, what they're doing in verse 3, by covetousness. What else do we see in verse 2? Back up one verse. Because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Why do we want to stand for truth? Because this false teaching makes Christianity look bad. Does. I get so frustrated sometimes seeing certain teachers on TV. Because I'm thinking there's somebody in their living room right now thinking that's what real Christianity is. Oh man, that starts to get to me. That starts to frustrate me. And so what happens is they blaspheme truth. And so that's why we're called to take a stand for truth. But you know what? Some people like that teaching, don't they? Go with me, if you will, to 2 Timothy. Here Peter is talking about what it's going to be like. Let's see what Paul has to say about this. 2 Timothy, please. 
2 Timothy is Paul's last epistle that he wrote. It's his swan song. And so you get to the last chapter here, 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is Paul's final recorded words. Through the Spirit, this is the final things that he wants to say. Look at what he says concerning truth and teaching. 2 Timothy 4, starting verse 1. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Wow. Final chapter, through the Spirit. What does he want to make sure you know? Get the word out there. There's this little thing that I notice a lot. I like to call it comfortable Christianity, where a lot of people don't want to go deeper. They don't. One commentator said it like this. He goes, most Christians want to be charmed rather than challenged. They want to be entertained rather than edified. And they want to be pleased rather than preached to. There's a lot of truth to that. But when you truly preach the word, you're going to get to a lot of verses that maybe you don't want to read. It is going to challenge you. It is going to edify you. It is going to preach to you. So we preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. In season and out of season. Learn to let go of you. It is not your time. Remember two weeks ago when we started our, started our study here in Second uh, Peter, Peter called himself a bondservant, a willful slave to a master. We need to stop and realize it's not your time. We live so much for our time. We live for the weekend, our time off, our days off. It's not wrong to desire that time to be with family, etc. That's good. But what happens is we become very selfish about time. And really what the Lord is trying to tell us is, wait a second, if you're a follower of me, you have willfully given me your life. So therefore, it's not your time, it's my time. And this is how I want to use you. That's really difficult to let go of. But I tell you, once you reach that point of realizing, Lord, it's not about me, it's about you, all of a sudden there's a freedom. There's a freedom of, okay, Lord, this is what you brought into my life. How can I use this for your glory? Now all of a sudden there's a reason for living. There's a reason for something deeper. Be ready in season and out of season. Let go of you and live for him. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Those aren't fun words sometimes. Sometimes it's not fun to go convince somebody. It's not fun to rebuke somebody. Exhort, that one's kind of fun. But with all long-suffering, patience, and teaching them, you're going to be put into positions as a believer to take a stand for truth. You may be the only believer on your line at work. You may be the only believer in your home. You may be the only believer in your class. And it's really easy to do what I call turtle Christianity. Stick your head in the shell and hope for the return of Jesus. No. We're called to live it. We're called to go out there and do this. Convince, rebuke, exhort. Once again, friendships may become a little rough. Because you're willing to take a stand for truth. Remember Ephesians 4, speak the truth in love. But sometimes we've got to speak the truth. Sometimes people don't want to be convinced. Convinced. They don't want to be rebuked. They don't want to be taught. What do they want? Verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you... Be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the works of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. That word for itching ears in verse 3 is a really interesting word. It actually means tickled. They want their ears to be tickled. Once again, charm me, don't challenge me, entertain me, don't edify me, please me, don't preach to me. Just, Just keep telling me about how great heaven is. Keep telling me how much God loves me. Hey, can you throw in there a little bit how he wants me to be healthy, wealthy, and wise too? That's what people want to hear. And that's what people will hear. And so what Paul is telling us is the end times, that's the doctrine that's going to become very acceptable. That's the doctrine that will become very loved. And what are they going to do in verse 4? 
turn away from the truth. So Paul is warning us of this. Jesus warned us of this. Jude warned us of this. And here now in 2 Peter, he's warning us of this as well. Let's jump back to 2 Peter, please. Now, in verses 4 through 6, Peter says this. God's not going to let this false doctrine take over. And he gives three examples of angels, Noah's generation, and Sodom and Gomorrah, of time where God said, I have to step in and judge this falseness. Verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment... And did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. These are supposed to be our examples. Three examples of where God said, I will not allow falseness to come. First thing we have in verse 4 is the angels who sinned. They were cast down. Can you go with me to Isaiah 14? Let's talk about this for a little bit. Let's talk about why the angels fell. And what happens is that we're going to use these three examples to say this is God's nature, that he will not let truth go unpunished. First example is angels, Isaiah 14. If you ever wanted to know what happened that caused Lucifer to fall, Lucifer is a created angel, and he fell. He took a third of the angels with him, the Bible says. Well, what happened? Isaiah 14, verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, and how you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, this is what it's called the five I will statements of Satan. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. Satan wanted to be God. And he has these five I will statements. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne. I will ascend. I will be like the most high. Pride. So what's the first false thing you see that God says I can't deal with and I will judge? is pride. Rich and I talk a lot as we're going to and from um, hospital visits. And we kind of talk about how almost everything comes back to pride. My feelings are hurt. Why? Because I'm not getting enough attention. I'm bothered at work. Why? Because I feel like I'm being taken advantage of. I'm bothered because my spouse doesn't care for me the way they used to. I'm bothered by this. And it's of this pride. It's all about me. People need to notice me more. People need to pay attention to me more. People need to meet my needs and wants more. Same thing Satan went through. It's all about me. And this is part of Christianity is dying to yourself. I'm not living for me. I'm living for the Lord. That selfishness that comes out. And so when our little needs aren't being met or our wants aren't being met, we kind of sit there and throw a little pity party for ourselves. Do you realize God will work with almost any sin in the Bible? And you've heard me mention this before. He's worked with adulterers. He works with liars. He works with murderers. He works with thieves. But God won't work with pride. Because pride won't let the Lord lead. Pride says, I'm going to do it my way, the way I want to do it. And God says, I cannot do that. I will judge that, just like he did with the angels. What about the next group? Noah. Well, we know the story of Noah and the flood. But why did God judge the earth? You don't need to turn there. It's just one quick verse. But if you're a note taker, you can write it down. It's out of Genesis chapter 6. Listen to how God saw the world during Noah's time. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
Let me read that one more time. Does that not sound like today? Genesis 6, 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God says, I need to judge this. Now, God in his patience and grace and mercy gave them 120 years, but the point is he goes, I need to judge this. And this is the same thing we're seeing here in 2 Peter, is this needs to be judged. God has a pattern of saying, I will judge falseness, pride, evil. What about the last one? Verse 6, there's Sodom and Gomorrah, sexual morality. Because I will judge that, and I'm going to do it in verse 6 as an example on how you're supposed to live. But in the midst of all this judgment, there's grace. Please remember this in the Bible. The world likes to represent God as this angry God that just loves sending people to hell. That can be farther from the truth. Ezekiel makes it very clear that God has no joy in the death of the wicked. No, not one. What the Lord wants is to see people be spared. Verse 5, Noah. What's he want to spare? Verse 7, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Righteous Lot was saved. Lot was saved out of Sodom and Gomorrah. He was righteous. That's quite the word. That's just a big fancy word just means to be made right. That's all righteous means. So if I stand up here today and tell you I am righteous, I'm not claiming perfection. I'm not claiming I haven't sinned. What I am claiming is this, is that I have been made right in Jesus Christ. Not by my works, not by anything I have done, by what Christ did on the cross. He said, I will take James's sin I will take James's punishment and I will make him right and I will carry that burden of punishment for him. Don't hide from the word righteousness because it makes it sound like, oh, I got it all figured out. I don't have it figured out. Oh, it makes it sound like I'm perfect. No, it doesn't. It makes it sound like this. You were covered in sin. Jesus took that away from you and made you right. That's all it is. That's what we get to celebrate this week. As Jesus' death on Wednesday... And then on Sunday morning, we're going to come back and celebrate the tomb being empty. And we are now righteous through Christ, made right. And Lot, he is righteous, verse 7. I think verse 8 wants to remind us, he's righteous. I think the Lord's trying to tell us right here that he is a righteous person. Let's talk about how righteous Lot was. Can we talk about him for a little bit? Go back to Genesis, please. Genesis 13. If this man is repeated as being righteous and God uses him as an example of somebody who was pulled out of judgment, then this is a good example for us to follow. In fact, that's what the Bible says. So let's learn from Lot's life on how to be righteous. Alrighty, what you have here going on in Genesis 13 is this. Abraham and Lot are together. Lot is Abraham's nephew. They have a lot of livestock. They have a lot of servants. They have a lot of everything. They don't have enough water. So they're starting to become this tension between their two groups, not between Abraham and Lot themselves, but between their herdsmen, etc. Take a look here at verse 8. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take to the left, then I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, then I'll go to the left. Well, and Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you cold towards Zior. So Lot looks up and says, I see it, and it looks a lot like Egypt. Now, whenever you see Egypt in the Bible, that represents the world. So Lot looks up and says, I see this plain towards Sodom and Gomorrah, and it reminds me of the world. 
I like that world. I want to be near that world. So that's what he chose. Verse 11, the Lot chose for himself all the plains of Jordan. And Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. Please remember that. Pitched his tent. Tent. Temporary dwelling. Tent. Near Sodom. That's our first thing with Lot. What happens next? Let's go on this a little bit. Well, what happens next in Genesis 14 is you see Lot, and what has happened now is Lot is now in Sodom. In Sodom. Take a look right here, verse 11. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom. So in chapter 13, he is in a tent near Sodom. Now, we see in verse 12 of chapter 14, he now lives in Sodom. And one more for fun. Go with me to Genesis 19, please. Genesis 19, the Lord sends two angels into Sodom and Gomorrah to pull Lot out and his family before he destroys it. And what do we have with Lot going on in Genesis 19? Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. Back during Bible times, if you sat at the gate, that means you were a city leader. You represented the town when people showed up. So in Genesis 13, he's living in a tent near it. In Genesis 14, he's living in Sodom. And by Genesis 19, he's part of leadership in Sodom. Now, he's still righteous, though, right? Made some bad choices. Saw some compromises. Kind of got into the world a little bit. Still righteous. Okay, what does this righteous man do? Well, what happens now is these two angels come and basically tell Lot, you got to get out of here. God's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. So grab your kids, grab your wife, and get out of here. Now, what happened, though, is the men of Sodom saw these two angels show up. Verse 4, now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter, surrounded the house and they called to Lot and said, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. This is the sexual morality of Sodom. We want those guys, send them out so that we may have them physically. Now remember, this is righteous Lot. What is righteous Lot's great idea? Verse 8. See now I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let them bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. And only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. Lot's great righteous act is to say, oh, you you can't touch those guys. These guys are kind of special. But here's my two virgin daughters. I'll just send them out. Do whatever you want with them. This is righteous Lot. So what happens now is Lot escapes with his two girls. His wife turns around, becomes a pillar of salt, if you remember the story. And Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed. So God, to keep Lot safe, says, I need you. I need you to go, verse 17, escape for your life. Do not look behind you nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains lest you be destroyed. Go up to the mountains, Lot, and you'll be safe. Lot's response, verse 18, Then Lot said to them, Please know, my lords. Indeed, now your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and I die. See now, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it not a little one, and my soul shall live? See, Lot wanted to stay comfortable. See, when Lot wanted to send his daughters out, what did he do? He wanted to compromise. And now what does Lot want to do? He wants to be comfortable. Do we not run into that same trap? We compromise a lot. You know, I probably shouldn't watch that. I probably shouldn't think that. I probably shouldn't look at that. I probably shouldn't say that. I probably should read more. I should probably study more. I should probably serve more. And our life is full of probably's. And what it is is really just a whole bunch of compromise. 
And then what happens is when the Lord wants to take us deeper, go to the mountains. I don't want to go to the mountains, Lord. Can't I just stay in town? It's like, Lord, I want to go deep in you, but please don't make, let me make me sacrifice. Lord, I want to go deeper in you, but please can't I sleep in? I've shared the story with you before one time just for fun. I wanted to find the smallest devotional I could. And the smallest one I found was they were selling was the one-minute devotional. Start your day out and just give the Lord one minute. Now, I'm telling you right now, one minute is better than no minutes. Grabbing the Pop-Tart or the granola bar on the way out the door is better than nothing. But that's the depth we want in our walk in relationship with the Lord. And I've mentioned to you many times over the years out here, they can't bully somebody into doing what's right. I can't whip you into doing it. I can only equip you. I'm just telling you, Lot was the guy that said, I can't do the mountains. That's too rough. But Lord, if you let me go to a town, just a little town, I could be much more comfortable. Lot's story ends up at the end of Genesis 19 with him having a relationship with his daughters after being drunk. This is righteous Lot. So when you read 2 Peter chapter 3, excuse me, chapter 2, and you see righteous Lot, and you're like, I don't know much about this guy, but obviously if the Lord's calling him righteous in verse 7 and righteous in verse 8, this is a guy I probably need to set my life example on. Maybe it's do the opposite of what Lot did. Well, then how can Lot be in heaven? Because your righteousness is not based on what you do. Your righteousness is based on Jesus Christ. None of us here have ever done enough to deserve heaven. That's the beauty of grace and mercy. Well, you may say, okay, I mean, I've done enough to do heaven, but you just told me what Lot did, and I've never done that. Look at also what's going on in Lot's life, though, verse 8. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. That word for tormented literally means tortured. It means harassed. In the Gospels, it's used as the wind being against you. Lot's life was miserable. Why? Because he was living in Sodom and Gomorrah. What they did bothered him. What they said bothered him. What he saw bothered him. It was an awful existence. I've shared with you many times before, the most miserable person in the world is going to be a Christian who knows what they're supposed to be doing, but they're not doing it. They can't have joy in the world, and they can't have joy in the Lord. What do we see here with Lot? He is tormented by what he sees and what he hears. See, his soul wanted more. And and some of you here today, you want more. But you don't want to live in the mountains. Can I live in town? You want more, but you don't want to make the sacrifice. You want more, but this idea of doulos, bondservant, giving up my time. ah, And you're stuck in this tormented state of, I desire more. I want more. I I, I hear it. I want to live it. I I want to think eternally. I want more. Then you just need to die to yourself. I was doing a study in Galatians, and Paul brings up this verse of, I crucify myself daily. Crucifying yourself, that is a painful, long process. But what happens is you slowly let go of yourself and you start living for him. Then all of a sudden it's like, okay, Lord, I used to love that, but now it's dead to me. Okay, Lord, I used to want that. My flesh would still kind of like it. But Lord, I need to die to that. And then you just start living for the Lord. And then when you start living for the Lord, there's a joy. There's a purpose. There's a contentment. Because it's not about me. You'll never fully be able to fulfill yourself. If you think you can, I just encourage you, go read the book of Ecclesiastes. 
It's about a man that literally had everything and there still was not joy. As we get ready to get into Resurrection Week here and Resurrection Sunday, what you're going to see is the only way to live is to really die. And when that happens, you can finally live. But back here to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 sums it up. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations, Lot, and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Angels, Noah, Sodom, and Gomorrah. You see, the Lord can do it. The Lord knows the falseness. The Lord knows the truth. The Lord knows the sheep. The Lord knows the goats, as the Matthew 25 likes to say. Our call is just to live for him. And when you live for him, man, that's when you really can start to understand what it means to think eternally about what's really going on in our lives. Worship team, if you want to come forward. Just want to encourage you guys. You know, we got a lot going on out here. We never want to be the church that's just busy to be busy. You know, uh, you may not feel led to go to Mexico. That's fine. Pray for